Thank you, Kayla. Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We'll be there in a moment. John chapter 3. And I would like to begin with a word of prayer. God, we are thankful that we can come now into your word. Lord, as we sang about your love, Lord, I pray that you'll help us to understand it better today. Lord, help us not just to acknowledge it, but to allow it to change who we are. Lord, I pray that you'll be with my words, Lord, that they will be from you, and that you will be glorified, that you will be exalted. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. As you know, if you've been here uh, recently, we've been going through a study um, called One Another. And uh, it's, it's a look into all the passages in Scripture that call us as believers to mutually, mutually interact with each other. Today is Valentine's Day, and so I'm sure, uh, hopefully, um, none of you husbands were just shocked by that statement. But uh, today is Valentine's Day, and so the logical choice would be for us to discuss the command that God gives us to love one another. However, we can never fully understand what it means to love one another until we understand the fact that God is the perfect example of love. Over 50 times in Scripture, uh, we are told that God loves us. Plus, if you add into that hundreds and thousands of time where God's love is revealed to us, we understand that God is love. And so we can never really uh, just uh, understand really what it means to love each other. I can never really understand what it means to love my wife or to love my kids or to love you until I understand the love of God. And so I want to look at a few verses, if, if you will, and just for a few moments just to help us to get an understanding of that. And uh, Jared, if you'll help, my phone's not uh, functioning clearly here today, but get to the first one there. Romans chapter 8 and verse 37 says, Knowing all these things, we're more than conquerors through Him who loved us. God loves us. The next one, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4 says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love which He has loved us. God loves us. I love that verse because it's, it, it gives us the idea of rich in mercy, and it's because God is rich in mercy that He loves us. We'll talk about mercy more later, but mercy, the idea of mercy is that, that God holds back from us the punishment that we deserve, and it tells us there that He is so rich in mercy because of the fact that He loves us. We go on to the next one. He says in Romans 5, 8, but God showed His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we could go on and on and on. We could look at many more throughout the Bible. But as we do that, we see over and over that God loves us. Then when God begins to instruct us, and He begins to tell us we're supposed to love one another, He always uses uh, His love for us as an example. Look what it says in 1 John 4.11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. The example he gives there, John chapter 15 and verse 12 is another one, and he tells us in that passage, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. 
So we cannot begin to discuss what it, the huge responsibility that God has given us to love one another until we understand God's love for us. Next week, we're going to dive into that. We're going to talk about what does it mean that I'm supposed to love you and you're supposed to love me, as difficult as that is. We're going to talk about that next week. But first, I want to take today, a day when our nation and, and much of the world talks about love, and I want to dwell on the perfect love of God. Since there's probably no greater summary of the love of God than that which is found in John 3.16, that's going to be our text for this morning. So if you look at John chapter 3 and verse 16. Now John 3.16 is the most familiar uh, verse in all of Scripture. Now people who know very little about God, very little about the Bible, know John 3.16. But because of its familiarity, a lot of times it gets kind of skipped over and we don't really talk about it much and you don't really hear, unless it's some event you're at where there's, there's a lot of unsaved people, maybe the, the evangelists will preach on it once in a while. And so I really wanted to take the time today and look at this familiar passage. The topic of God's love is truly an overwhelming subject. And trying to tackle it in one message I think is, is almost impossible. There's so much the Bible has to say about the love of God that I doubt anyone could really get into it in one passage. A.W. Tozer, an author who, who's written many books, but uh, uh, one of the best books he has is called Knowledge of the Holy. If you have not read that, I, I, I recommend that you do that. And In the book, Knowledge of the Holy, he talks about the love of God and he says this, I can, do no more, I can no more do justice to this awesome and wonderful topic than a child can grasp a star. Still, by reaching towards the star, the child may call attention to it and even indicate the direction one must look to see it. And so, I stretch my heart towards the high, shining love of God so that we may be encouraged to look up and have hope. John 3.16 is just a simple text. It's one sentence, really. That sentence contains only 24 words, yet... That one sentence is packed with so much truth that we literally do not have time to fully grasp it. We're going to try. From this one verse, we can see a number of different truths, but I want to look at seven truths this morning. If you have your bullets and you can take out the notes and follow along and, and uh, fill in the blanks there, and, and we'll do our best to, to give them to you. But uh, you can see seven truths, and we could get many, many more, but I just want to look at them, and as, as we go through them, I want to relate them to the verse uh, as we see it in John. So the very first thing I want you to notice, I want you to notice that God's love is unconditional. It says there in that passage, for God so loved the world. God so loved the world. The, the Greek word world there is cosmos, and it's defined this way. It's, it's the ungodly multitude, the whole mass of men that are alienated against God and therefore hostile to the cause of Christ. This is the world that God loved. It doesn't say in that passage, it doesn't say God loved all the good guys. We would all be out, wouldn't we? It doesn't say God loved all the saints. What does it say? God loved the world. 
Were we uh, to imagine a perfect world, fresh from the Creator's hands, unaffected by evil, then we would more easily comprehend God's desire to love, God's desire to care for, God's desire to save. But the, a wayward world, a world that is so filled with sin and has so failed to comprehend who God is, in John, it says that, uh, it says that we, uh, He was in the world and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. And this world that is so wayward and fails to comprehend its Maker, fails to understand who He is, and openly hates Him, this does not seem like an appropriate choice for God's love. And yet He loves us. And God's love isn't based on spiritual condition. It's not based on moral lifestyle. It isn't based on our behavior. It's not based on our attitude towards Him. Today, so many people are treating God as if He doesn't exist. Many of you go out in the world and you notice this all the time. Many people are belittling Him. Many are denying Him. Many are claiming that uh, He doesn't exist. Many are claiming that He is their God, but give Him very little time. And yet He loves them. And yet He loves us. We see that God's love for mankind is universal. It's unconditional. He loves everyone. And that is one of the things that sets God apart from every other God of this world. Many years ago, there was a, uh, a religions conference and, and a lot of the uh, men from all over the world who were uh, are pastors and teachers gathered and there was a lot of well-known individuals there. And, and so, as, as the case, this, this week I had an opportunity to go to a conference and a lot of times you get to these conferences and there's a lot of, you know, people like to debate about things. And so that was going on at this conference. There was a bunch of men, pastors gathered around and, and they were debating some different topics. And, and one of the topics they began debating is what sets Christianity apart from all the other religions of the world? What makes Christianity different? And so the first guy says, well, I think it's, it's his incarnation. The fact that Jesus Christ came down in, in human form and came to earth, that, that's, that's, that's so unique. And someone said, well, actually, there's other faiths that believe that their God came in human form. One other suggested, well, maybe it's the resurrection. The tomb was empty. And someone said, no, no, no. There's, there's other religions that account of people returning from the dead. Story then goes on. It says at that moment, the, an older gentleman walked in, and all the all the men noticed him, and he came over and he sat kind of off to the side, and he kind of didn't say anything. He was the speaker for the next the next next session. His name his, he was a man by the name of C.S. Lewis. Maybe some of you have heard of him. He's written many books, including the Chronicles of Narnia and and uh, Screw Tape uh, Letters and. Um, yeah, that's not what I meant. Is that what I meant? Yeah, that's what I meant. Thank you. Didn't sound right when I said it. But uh, he's written many, uh, many letters, and he was the next speaker, and he sat down, and he began listening to the conversation, really wasn't contributing, and, and finally he kind of uh, made, a, made a sound uh, that, you know, under his breath, and, and all the men turned and looked at him, and, he, and he, he said, what's all this rumpus about? Everyone turned in his direction. They began to explain to him. They said, we're debating about what's unique about Christianity, and he he got quiet and they're all just staring at him and finally said, well, that's easy. It's God's love. 
The room fell silent. He went on to say that Christianity is unique because God claims that his love comes free of charge, no strings attached. No other religion makes that claim. He went on to say, he said, you know, the Buddhists, for example, they follow an uh, eight uh, eightfold path to enlightenment. It's not a free ride. The Hindus believe in karma, which is that you know, your actions continually affect the world around you and your good actions bring good things. Your bad actions bring bad things. He said the Jewish code of law that, that, that God sent down was this, that it implies a requirement to be accepted. The Islam, the people of the Islam faith, they believe that God is a God of judgment, not a God of love, and, and you live in a way to appease Him. Only Christianity declares to proclaim that God's love is unconditional. An unconditional love. It's something we call grace. And grace really has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with my inner resolve to do better. It has nothing to do with, with uh, anything that I can do. Rather, grace is all about God. Grace is all about God freely giving us Forgiveness, mercy, and love. Author Philip Yancey said this, There is nothing we can do to make God love us more. There is nothing we can do to make God love us less. Isn't that an amazing thought? You see in John 3.16, God says, it says there, Jesus says, For God so loved the world. Second thing I want to notice is that the love of God is sacrificial. It says that God so loved the world, what? That He gave. If you have uh, an ESV Bible and you look down in the footnotes, you will see that it said this. It rephrases it this way, for this is how God loved the world. In other words, what it's saying is this. This is how God revealed His love to the world. How did He reveal His love to the world? By, by giving, by serving, by sacrificing. We learn something here important about the nature of God's love and really about the nature of love. And that is this, love is not just something that I get, love is something that I give, it's something that I sacrifice. God loved the world so much that He gave. It wasn't God loved the world so much that He accepted. You know, some people think that loving others is because of what they do for us or how they make us feel. You know, I fell in love with this person. It's how they make us feel, but God shows us that true love has nothing to do with what we can do for Him. But everything to do with what He does for us. That's His pattern. You see, God's love is, is unconditional. God's love is sacrificial. Next one, God's love is valuable. Notice what it says, for God so loved the world that He gave what? His only I mean, think about that for a moment. We suddenly see the value of God's love for us. Not only was He willing to give, but He gave us something that He had only one of. When you give to someone out of your abundance, it's one thing, but when you give them out of your poverty, it's quite another. Imagine for a moment if we were to go and, and you were to come with me and we were to go to uh, someone's house. It was a friend of yours and rather a well-to-do individual mansion, lived in a mansion, and you go in, in behind the, the house and he has a 10-car garage. 
Okay? And you walk in this 10-car garage, and you come to the first car. It's a Porsche, and you think, that's pretty nice. And you go to the next one, and it's a, it's a BMW, and then he's got a Mercedes-Benz, and then he's got uh, this really nice SUV. And you go down the line, and you get all the way down to the end, and he's got this, in the corner, he has this 1990 Honda Civic. And you begin talking to him, and you're, you're, you're telling him about your life, and you're like, you know, I'm just going through a lot right now, and I'm struggling, and I'm, I'm hurting financially, and, and I, didn't even have, I don't even have enough money right now for a car. I had to sell my car. And he, he looks at you, and he says, you know what? I've been trying to get rid of this Civic for a while. How about you just take it? It's got about 300,000 miles on it, but I'm, I'm, it probably still runs. Why don't you go ahead and have it? Now imagine we go at another time. We go and we visit this college student. He's got no money. He's bumming a you know, couch off of his friend to sleep in. And you tell him the same story. You know, I'm not doing well. I'm struggling and I don't even have a car. And he goes, well, you know what? I've got my 1990 Civic out in the back. You can have it. Let me ask you a question. Which one gave sacrificially? The guy with, you know, with tons of cars and just happens to have this one buried here that he doesn't want anymore, or the guy that, man, that's all he's got. We look and we see that when we say something like that, we see they gave something above and beyond the call of duty. It was a sacrifice. How many times have you heard someone or even said this yourself, I can't give that to you because it's the only one I got? We've probably all said that. What we learn here is that God didn't have a backup. God didn't have a spare. He loved us so much that He was willing to give us the only one He had. Isn't that amazing love? The power and the passion of God's love comes across through the lengths to which God was willing to go for the sake of the world, to give His one and only. We see that God's love, the love of God is valuable, but next we see the love of God is personal. It's personal. It says there that God, what? For God so loved the world that He gave His only what? Son. God's love is not merely some abstract concept. It's not a philosophy. It's not just a theological term. God's love was made manifest in this world through the person of Jesus Christ, His only Son. Jesus came into this world to reveal to us the love of God in human form. Now, if you're looking in John, remember, who is John talking to here? Or excuse me, who is Jesus talking to here in John? He's talking to a man by the name of Nicodemus. Who is Nicodemus? Nicodemus was a Pharisee. We talked about Pharisees a few weeks ago. Pharisees knew the Old Testament law inside and out. Many of them, by the time they were 16, would have memorized the entire Old Testament. And so Nicodemus would have realized who God was. He would have understand really the love of God. But the thing about, about the Jews and their view of God and their view of the love of God was they knew God revealed Himself to them. They knew God loved them, but it was from a distance. What do I mean that, by that? Remember when God came and appeared to, uh, to, to Moses? How did He appear to him? He appeared to him through what a burning bush. Not very approachable, is it? We look and we see the history. How did God reveal Himself to the people of Israel? He said, hey, I'm, I'm going to show you where to go by uh, a cloud and by a pillar of fire. 
And then finally they come and they establish a place of worship. And he said, in this place of worship, I'm going to have this one section called the Holy of Holies. And no one's allowed in there because that's where I dwell. See, because God to them was something that was unapproachable. Was something that was not they could grasp onto. He revealed himself all the time to them. If you will, take your Bible and look at Psalm 136. Psalm 136. I don't have this on the, on the screen, so uh, you can look there. Psalm 136. If you notice the pattern of this psalm, over and over again, the psalmist says the same phrase. He says, he says one phrase, and then he'll say, for a steadfast love endures forever. You see that. Look at verse 1. He said, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for a steadfast love endures forever. They understood the steadfast love. How did God reveal their stead, his steadfast love to them? Through the works that he did. Okay, look at some, just for a minute. Look at verse 4. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. In other words, the psalmist is saying, God revealed his love to us because he made the heavens. You go on in verse 6 and it says, he, made the, uh, he spread out the earth above the waters. Verse 7, he made great lights. The sun, verse 8, the moon and stars, verse 9. And then he gets into specifically Israel. Look at verse 10. To him who struck down the first war of Egypt for his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 11, and brought Israel out from among them for his steadfast love endures forever. He goes on and he talks about things. Verse 17, who struck down great kings. He goes on and he talks about some of the great kings. Verse 21, and he gave their land as a heritage. What's my point through this? The people of Israel fully understood the fact that God loved them. Because how? Because He revealed it to them through His mighty works, through His great works. But here we see something completely different in John chapter 3, verse 16. And Nicodemus would have caught it. He says, God so loved the world that He gave His only what? Son. Suddenly His love became very personal. If you call me and say, hey, can you come on over and, and help me you know, shovel my yard? I'll do it. Okay, Not every time maybe, but I'll do it. But if you call me and say, hey, can you give me your son? I'm going to hesitate on that. Because suddenly you got personal. God loves us so much that His love is personal. It's not just distant. It's something that comes and is a part of us. But God's love is not only personable because He gave a person, but it's also personable because it's bestowed to a person. You. God loves you. Max Lucado in one of his books said this, and it sounds maybe like he's being... Uh, a little casual, but I believe this is true. He says this, There are many reasons God saves you to bring glory to Himself, to appease His justice, to demonstrate His sovereignty, but one of the sweetest reasons God saves you is because He is extremely fond of you. He likes having you around. He thinks you are the best thing to come around. If God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. If He had a wall, your photo would be in it. He sends you flowers every spring and sunrise every morning. Whenever you... Uh, 
where whenever you want to talk, he'll listen. He can live anywhere in the universe, but he chooses your heart because he's crazy about you. God's love is personal. It's not something that's abstract. It's something that's real. But next, I want to notice number five. God's love is accessible. Notice if you continue on, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him. And that is the amazing news about God's love that it is not limited to a select few. It's not available to only those who are born with the right color skin or on the right continent or with the right amount of money. It's not for those that are only intellectual. It's not for those that are only the power brokers or the financially savvy. No, God's love is accessible to whoever believes in Jesus. Another author wrote this. He said, from the human perspective, when you compare God to the other gods of the other religions in the world, you have to say that our God, the God of Christianity, is really sort of odd. Now listen. He uses the most common people, people that aren't any different from any of us. He comes in the most common of ways when by His Spirit an anonymous young woman is found to be with child. And the strangest thing is that He comes at all. He's not the above us God, too holy to come down God. This God's love is so immense that He wants to come down. He has proven His love by the fact that He did come down and touch our soil that we walk on. He's accessible. God has come down to our level. Not in the sense that it lessens His holiness or that He lowers His standards, but only in the sense that He has made His love accessible to the average, everyday person. Look at Jesus' life and over and over again, when Jesus goes, and who does He interact with? Does He interact with the elite? No, in fact, the elite people were the Pharisees that He was constantly telling them they, they were wrong. He inter- interacted with, the, with everyone. His love is accessible. He's not a distant God who loves us only from some mystical, faraway place that is completely removed from us. Rather, He has entered our world and He longs to enter our lives. The question is, will you believe in this Son? Will you believe in Jesus who has made the ultimate expression of God's love by giving His life on the cross? By choosing to believe in Him, you have access to this love of God. You have access to the grace of God. You have access to the forgiveness of God. We see that God's love is accessible. Number six, God's love is merciful. Again, look at John 3.16. What does he say? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. That whoever believes in Him, what does it say next? Should not perish. God's goal in sending His Son from heaven to earth was not to come down to condemn you. Jesus Christ said that Himself. Or was it to show you how bad you are? That's why He gave us the law in the Old Testament. Or to show us how unworthy we are or how hopeless we are. God's only desire in sending Jesus was to show you His love and to draw you into a loving relationship with Himself. And the only way that was possible was through Jesus. Jesus didn't come into the world to rebuke you. He came to rescue. He didn't come to criticize you. He came to cleanse you. He didn't come to punish you. He came to pardon you. He didn't come to destroy you. He came to deliver you. And it was all by the mercy of God. 
that he, that took place. However, I do want to notice something. It does say this, that whoever believes should not perish. Because there's too many people in this world that would say, well, God's God loves, so he's not going to judge. But notice that that phrase, should not perish, implies that there is punishment. Because mercy implies that there is punishment. The idea of mercy is that God withholds His punishment from us. And so what that does imply is there is punishment. God, this does not mean that God is not a God of judgment. There's a difference between judging the unrepentant sinner and being judgmental. Being judgmental means that one has a critical spirit and only looks for the bad in people and is quick to condemn them. God, on the other hand, will judge sinners and even sentence them to hell. But, that's his last resort. And that happens only if we refuse to accept his offer of forgiveness. Another way to look at it is this. It's not so much that God sends us to hell or sends people to hell as it is that we choose hell over heaven. We choose Satan over God. We choose sin over Christ's Righteousness. So God's love is merciful. And the last thing I want to look at here in a few moments is the love of God is beneficial. The love of God is beneficial. And it says that uh, you should not perish, but what? But have everlasting, and the King James says everlasting. ESV, it says have eternal life. About 50 years ago, Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, there was a young professor who had just started. Uh, he was teaching on various subjects, and, uh, and, and he, he, he decided to do an experiment, a project. And so he had his students do this. He had them go into the inner city in Baltimore, and they interviewed 200 of the kids in this, this, this downtown uh, slum area, this project area. And he asked them, he said, interview them, and he gave them a list of questions, and they began asking these kids, these 200 kids, these questions. And then he come, came back and he said, what I want you to do now is I want you to predict their future. Based on your interview and, and their circumstances and everything around, I want you to predict their future. The students predicted that 90% of these 200 kids would end up in jail. 120 of these 200 kids, they predicted would end up in jail. Twenty years later, this professor decided he was going to do a follow-up study. So he had a new batch of students, and so he said to these new batch of students, what I want you to do is I want you to track down these original 200 men, young boys, who were interviewed, and I want you to find out how they're doing. So they went back and they began to search, and they weren't able to find all of them. They were able to find 180 of the 200 and they began to uh, study them, and they found out, this is amazing, of those 180 kids that they found who are now older, only four of them had gone to jail. He was shocked by the results. 
The students came back and told him, you know, most of them are living uh, upstanding lives. Most of them are productive. Most of them have good jobs. And he, he was shocked by this. And he said, there's got to be a reason for this. And so he said, let's figure out what this is. And so they began doing a deeper study into these individuals' lives and, and began asking more questions. You know, why are you successful? What made you successful? And what was interesting is they came back, over 100 of them, about 120 of them came back and said there was one thing that they all had in common. You know what it was? A teacher. They all came back and said they had this one teacher that impacted them in a great way. So now, suddenly, this professor's like, we've got to find this teacher. So they went and they found her. By now, she's, she's 75 years old. She was living in a nursing home in Memphis, and they tracked her down. Her name was Sheila O'Rourke. And they began, and a bunch of them went down, and they interviewed her, and she was just... she was confounded, puzzled why this, all these people were interested in her. And they told her that about this, this, this study that they had done and how uh, all these kids pointed to her as the reason that they were successful. And, and they said, what was your reason? You know, what did you do? And she said this, all I ever did was love them. And here's the thing. That's the power of love. If that is the result of being loved by an imperfect human love, what must the result be of being loved by a divine, perfect creator? As a result of this teacher's love, each of these boys had a life. Each of these boys uh, made a difference. My question for you is, what is the result of God's love to you? What is the result of, uh, of a perfect God reaching down and, and giving you His Son and sh- expressing to you His love? What is the result? I want to look quickly, just briefly here, at three results I think we can, we, we can see clearly as we look at life. First of all, we see from the passage it says there that they, they receive eternal life. And, and uh, John says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. God tells us that when we accept this gift of Jesus Christ and and believe that Jesus Christ died for us and we accept it, that we will have eternal life in heaven. The proper response to God's love is to accept His love, to believe in Him, which leads to salvation and leads to a security that we cannot get anywhere else. Jesus told Nicodemus that in order to have eternal life, he must believe that God is who He says He is. Secondly, I believe that a benefit of the love of God is joy. You know, this comes naturally, joy comes naturally in any life that is loving God and being loved by God. Things may fall apart all around, but still there is a deep-seated joy in the heart knowing that God is still God, and God is still in control, God loves you, and God has your best in mind. It's such a reassuring thought. This joy cannot be understood by carnal minds. How can you go through these things and still have a joy? Because God loves me. Maybe it's hard to explain even for us that there's a joy. Then finally, peace. Peace. 
It's amazing how confusion and uncertainty in life comes to a hush when someone realizes that God loves them enough to do something about it. If you are at peace with God, then this throws a whole different meaning to your life. Just knowing that nothing is standing between you and God, your Creator, knowing that this keeps your heart at peace. A loving God grants us access to Him that we couldn't have otherwise. A loving God who, who, who for so long seemed to the Jews to be unapproachable has now made Himself approachable by sending His Son, His perfect Son, to die for you. And nothing else could give you peace. Before Christ, there was a veil of separation. There was a veil, a dividing wall. And that's why when Jesus Christ died, the Bible tells us that the, the temple curtain ripped in half. Because that was a symbolic thing of the fact that there's separation between us and God. But when Christ came, that separation that was created by sin, that allowed us never to be in the presence of God, but the death of Jesus tore that apart, and now all who believe in Him can go in freely. And that brings with it a tremendous amount of peace. I'm going to ask uh, to do something a little bit different this morning. I want you to, uh, in a moment, we're going to stand and uh, sing a song. And actually, Caleb played it a moment ago. This week, as I was contemplating on the love of God, this song kept coming back to me. And it's the song, It Is Well With My Soul. And I've, I've heard this song my, uh, my whole life, and... In fact, when I was, when I was a kid, my, the Christian school I was going to did a play and, and, and played out the, the story of this song. And if you haven't heard it, just simply the guy who wrote it had lost everything. His, fam- his family, uh, his wife and daughters had died in a, in a, in a boat accident and, and he had lost everything. And yet he wrote the words to this song and he said in this song, it's well with my soul. So what I would like to do is, um, we don't, without the piano, so what this means is you're going to have to listen to my voice, and I may never do this again the rest of my life, just so you understand, okay? But I want you to really think about the words of this song. If you don't know it, I think it's 417 in our hymn book. But if you'll stand with me, and let's sing, and you might want to turn my mic down a little bit so you don't have me, <laughs> not completely, because then you won't hear me, but... I'm going to sing verse, verse 1, When Peace Like a River. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou Well, it is well. 
want you to think about the words of verse 3. It says this, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. Then listen to this. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Let's sing that together. My sin, first line. It's one of my favorite lines in all, all of hymns. It says this, And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. You know, here's the thing. is like I said earlier, there's people in this world today who says, Oh, God doesn't exist. How, you know, how can you waste your time going to church every week? How, how, you know, it's, uh, it's, he's not out there. And how do we, what do we say? What do we respond? Well, I live by faith. But there will come a day when our faith will take sight. And all that we just we, we knew existed, but yet we've never seen, will be there. So sing along with me as we sing this last verse, and then we'll sing the chorus. And question I have for you is, is it well with your soul? The only way that's possible is by accepting the love that God gives us through the gift of Jesus Christ. And then my question for you is, how do you respond to the love of God? Well, there's two ways, and then we'll close. And that is loving God, and as we'll talk about next week, loving one another. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that it can be well with our soul. Lord, we know that there are so many people out there who struggle and ache and, and they, don't, they cannot find peace. They cannot find security. Lord, and as Christians, even many times we struggle with that, but we know that, that it's possible when we really contemplate the love of God, the love of Jesus, 
has been manifested through his death. Lord, I pray that you help us to live that and then learn to love you and love one another. Lord, we ask this in your name. Amen.